Well, uh, if you're visiting today or you haven't been with us for long, then uh, you're coming at a good time. We are about to embark on the Sermon on the Mount. It's not something we're doing in isolation. We find ourselves at the beginning of Matthew 5 because we have done Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4 over a period of uh, many months. And we come now to chapter 5, to, as I say, the Sermon on the Mount. It is one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. There is not just one part of it that is well known, but there is almost every single section of it is well known. We'll do a bit of skimming today multiple times, but if you look at the beginning of chapter 5, you will see what is known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, verses 3 and 4, and then onwards. The Beatitudes are famous not just within the church, but outside of the church as well. The expression in verse 13 of salt and light, uh, and verse 14 obviously light, um, then that passage again is known almost universally even outside of the church. People still speak of being salt and light even in non-Christian contexts. Then we have verses 17 through 20, uh, one of the most important sections in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about the role of Jesus with the Mosaic Law, which we'll unpack in detail and is pretty well known. And then we have the section uh, from 21 to the end of the chapter. You have heard it said, but I say to you, talking about all sorts of things, whether it is... Um, Thou shalt not uh, commit adultery, and yet anyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery. Whether it's the an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. All of this section obviously is very well known. When we get to chapter 6, the context of prayer, we have perhaps the most well-known passage in the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father who art in heaven. I think I knew that by heart when I was about eight years old, long before I was a Christian. And there are so many people who are not part of God's kingdom, are not saved, are not Christian, who nevertheless can recite this by heart. Again, it is ubiquitous in its uh, in it being so well known. Then we have passages regarding treasures in heaven that are very well known. Do not worry, don't the sparrows get, you know, clothed better than Solomon and so on and so forth. Again, very well known. Then we come to chapter 7 and we have, I think, one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible outside of the church. And not only the most well-known, but probably the most popular verse in the entire Bible for those who are non-Christians. It is, of course, do not judge so that you will not be judged. That needs to be unpacked in its context, as we will do. Ask and it will be given to you, verse 7, is equally well known. The narrow gate, 
is, is very, very well known. And then we are talking about um, those who did miracles in his name. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And then we come to the end of chapter 7 and the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And we have... Um, the Jesus saying, don't build your house on the sandy land, don't build it too near the shore, if you know the children's song. Again, passages that are incredibly well known inside and outside the church. Now, that's not the only time we're going to skim through the sermon today, but I just wanted to show you that this is a passage, 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that is astonishingly well known. Perhaps in the entirety of the Bible, there are not three chapters that are better known than these three chapters. But then equally, there are hardly three chapters that are more misunderstood. And thus, we must come to it and unpack it slowly and carefully. It will take us months rather than weeks to get through these chapters. But we will make sure that by the end of it, if you're here week after week, that you will understand it fully. And it will, even if you are very familiar with it, it will come to you with freshness and new light, no doubt, by the time we get to the end. All of that to say that having gone from 5, 6, and 7, we now need to go back to 1, 2, 3, and 4. Because we have to have our context to be able to understand what's going on. For those of you who haven't been with us, we have in the first three chapters the introduction to Matthew's gospel. It begins in chapter 1 verse 1 with sonship. Jesus is the son of David. That means he is the promised Jewish Messiah who is going to fulfill all that was promised to the Jews through the scripture. Their Messiah, um, the son of God. The one who will bring in the kingdom. But he's also the son of Abraham. And Abraham is the one to whom it was promised that all nations on the earth would be blessed. He is the one who is going to come to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And then the third chapter ends with another reference to sonship. When at the baptism of Jesus, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so the first three chapters is all about who Jesus is and his coming. We see at the end of chapter 3 also the ministry of John the Baptist, something that we'll refer back to in a moment. So the ministry of Jesus began in chapter 4. In the beginning of chapter 4, there's the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, another well-known passage. And he, in that passage, proves himself to be the son that the Father declared him to be. He shows in no uncertain terms that, yes, he is that Messiah. He is the Son, the Anointed One, and the King of Psalm 2. He is the servant as well of Isaiah. He is the Messiah. And then the ministry begins, and this is where we need to really focus for our context. There's three things that happen in the last part of chapter 4 that's relevant moving into chapter 5. Firstly, as he begins his ministry, he is, he is preaching, verse 17, and saying this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we've dealt with this a few times. It is imperative that we unpack it one more time, because you cannot understand the context of the Sermon on the Mount without this verse. This is a repetition of what the John the Baptist said, going back into chapter 3. He said when he came... 
The same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 3 and verse 2. This is important and this is why. You must understand this. Jesus has not come to a random group of people to tell them a bunch of platitudes, to tell them this is how you should live your life. There are so many interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the most common in the world today is a theologically liberal view, which basically just sees the Sermon on the Mount as like good ideas for living. It kind of goes along with the idea that, you know, if you're a good person, you'll go to heaven. Are you, are you a, a murderer? Are you some sort of pedophile? Are you some sort of horrifically nasty person who gets pleasure from hurting other people? Well, there'll be a hell for you, of course. But do you help little old ladies across the road? Do you send Christmas cards to your granny? Are you just a generally nice person? I mean, not really nice. I mean, you might occasionally do things wrong and, you know, you might have cheated here a few times and there and you might not be nice. But generally speaking, you're fairly nice. Well, here's a bunch of ideas to help you live a fairly nice life. And then because you're fairly nice, you'll get to go to heaven. The liberal crowd, that's how they view it. That there is an almost universalism in that almost everybody is saved apart from the very bad people. You know, people like Hitler and Donald Trump and people like that. But everybody else gets saved, right? Everybody else gets saved. That's the kind of liberal view. And they view the Sermon on the Mount in that kind of idea. And so when they come to the Beatitudes and it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and things like that, blessed are those who mourn, they then create this social gospel where the way that we measure our faith is by, you know, having, uh, embracing critical race theory and a social justice and, you know, and we'll score points for how much money we give to the poor and things like that. And, and then they quote Matthew 25 out of context. You've got years till we get there. But, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. And, and they create this kind of idea that nice people will be okay. Okay. Firstly... That is not the context of this at all, not even remotely. Jesus is writing to a specific people at a specific time. And Matthew, whose gospel we're in, has an even more precise sort of uh, focus than the other gospel writers. As we have already seen, Matthew is predominantly writing to the Jewish people. He has a Jewish audience and therefore his gospel is the most Jewish of all the gospels. There are a ton of quotations from the Old Testament, as we've already seen. There's even more allusions, sort of nudging and saying, hey, remember that passage in the Old Testament? But even more than that, Matthew is really interested in rabbinical or pharisaical Judaism. Why? Because it's a fascinating subject. No, I I read quite a lot about it, and I can assure you it's not fascinating at all. I do that work so that you don't have to. It's not fascinating. However, it was the predominant religious view of the people to whom he is writing at the time that he is writing. And so, so much of what Matthew says is, is written not only in a context of, of Old Testament, not only in the context of Jewishness, but in the context of the Pharisees' Judaism. And the reason 
that the liberal interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount is not just wrong, it's utterly ridiculous and deeply ironic, is because it's the very view that the Pharisees held that Jesus is rebuking. The Pharisees were the universalists of the day. The Pharisees taught this. All Israel has a share of the kingdom to come. Are you a Jew? Yes. Guys, have you been circumcised? Yes. Are you raised in the Jewish faith? Yes. It doesn't matter what you do. You're in the kingdom. And you're in the kingdom. And you're in the kingdom. And as Oprah said, you all get to be in the kingdom. That's how it is. Everybody gets a place just so long as they are a Jew. Because all Israel has a share in the kingdom to come. They were the theological liberals of the day. You say, hold on a second. Weren't the Pharisees the really strict religious people? Aren't they like at the other end of the spectrum? Well, yes, they managed to do that as well. It's bizarre. But they were astonishing legalists as well who... Kind of like the Mormons of the, of today would kind of put on their suit and tie and their little Pharisee badge as they go about on their bikes and they would say, look how wonderful we are. Look how clean we are. Look how perfect we are. Aren't we the obviously righteous ones? That was what the Pharisees were like. And, and you may at this point have a very, very valid question, which is, How is it that they can teach that all of Israel gets to be in the kingdom? And at the same point, they're so nitpicky about all of these details of theology and have all of these additional rules and regulations. And and by the way, when I say additional, I mean additional. Moses said, obey the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do you know how many laws the Pharisees had regarding how to keep the Sabbath? Over 2,000. It was a heavy, heavy burden to try and be a Jew in the time of the Pharisees. So the question then, which is, as I say, a valid one, is how do you get to be like that and still be a universalist? That makes no sense. You live how you like, you get in the kingdom. And the answer is honor and privilege. The Pharisees believed all Israel would be in the kingdom, but how highly ranked you are in the kingdom is going to come down to the details. Hence, tithing of their mint and their herbs. Or herbs, as you guys say, because you love dropping that H. Suddenly you love the French. Never understood it. Anyway, they do all the tiny details, and as such, uh, they are seeking for themselves the same kind of place in the hierarchy that they hold on earth now at the time of the coming of the kingdom. So when Jesus and John the Baptist say, repent for the kingdom is at hand, they are offering the kingdom as the Jews understood it, as the Old Testament presented it, which is a temple in Jerusalem, the Messiah in the temple, and him overseeing his kingdom, which is the entirety of the world, and all of the nations coming to worship him. And the earth living in a time of peace and prosperity and the glory of God filling the earth. 
And the righteousness of God filling the earth. And the Jews having a special place in that kingdom. That's what they're waiting for. That's what they're expecting. And that's what's being offered. Do not think about parables of sowers or mustard seeds. That's chapter 13. We haven't got there. We're not going to be there for a long time yet. Right now, there is an offer of the kingdom as prophesied in the Old Testament. The king is here. And he's come to establish his kingdom. Do you want to be in it? I want to be in it. So what do I have to do? You have to repent. Understand this very clearly. Because the Sermon on the Mount is built on this foundation. They are rejecting Pharisaic Judaism. The Pharisees said, you all get to come in. Everybody gets to come in. You're a Jew, in you come. You're not a Jew, go get circumcised, take on the law, come and be part of the club, then you can come in too. But everybody gets to come in. And Jesus, and John the Baptist before him says, listen, the king's here, the kingdom is imminent. If you want to be in it, you have to repent. You have to turn from what you're doing right now, how you're living, what your life is, and you need to turn in faith to the coming king and place your trust in him. And unless there is a turning, unless there is a shifting, unless there is a a going away from, and this, this is very clear, from Pharisaic Judaism, then you won't have a place in the kingdom. And so clear does Matthew make this, that when the Pharisees show up at the baptism of Jesus, when they show up, John the Baptist says to them, you brood of vipers! Aren't you glad John the Baptist didn't have Twitter? Man, he'd have gotten in some trouble. He wouldn't be on the other platforms at all. He'd have been banned long ago. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? In other words, there is going to be wrath for those outside the kingdom. And the only ones who get in the kingdom are the ones that repent And the Pharisees, who consider themselves the gatekeepers of the kingdom, who let everybody in, those Pharisees, they're not even going to get in themselves. A point that Jesus will make very clearly towards the end of the gospel. And so, at that time in chapter 3, John the Baptist says that the other one is coming, the one who's mightier than I, I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we analyzed that passage in detail, compared it to the context, compared it to the other Gospels. And it was abundantly clear that the message of John the Baptist was, Jesus is going to baptize you. That much is for sure. Will it be a baptism of the Spirit? Or will it be a baptism of fire? Will you be saved and in the kingdom and receive the Spirit? Or will you be judged? And will you suffer fire for all eternity? That's the two options you have. So when Jesus repeats that at the beginning of his ministry, in chapter 4 and verse 17, if you want to look into the text now, what he is doing at this point is he's making abundantly clear, Matthew's making it clear that Jesus is echoing the same sentiment, the same doctrine, the same teaching as John the Baptist, which is, we have come to call you to something that is different from Pharisaic Judaism. 
It's different from the universalism. It's different from the legalism. It's different from all that they get wrong. And they themselves don't have a place in the kingdom. And the only way that you are getting in is a repentance. It's a leaving behind and a turning to something different. You've got to repent or you don't get in. And Jesus began to preach that message. So that's the first thing that we have to understand going into the Sermon on the Mount. The second thing we have to understand and we have to see very briefly in verses 18 to 22 of chapter uh, 4, which we did a few weeks ago, or last week rather, um, and that is the calling of the first disciples. Jesus now has disciples and we'll see as we come to the Sermon on the Mount that these disciples are relevant. When we see in chapter 5 verse 1, his disciples came to him, And he opened his mouth and began to teach them. So it's the disciples that are being taught in the Sermon on the Mount. That's going to be relevant. That's going to be relevant. And the third thing that we need to see is those last three verses of chapter 4, that Jesus came, and again we taught it last week, he came, verse 23, teaching, preaching, healing. And so he goes teaching in synagogues. So he's going to the Jews. What's he saying in the synagogues? We know what he's saying. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm the king, the kingdom's coming. Do you want to be in? You can't be with the status quo. You can't be with the Pharisees. You need to repent. They got it wrong. That's what he's teaching to the Jews in the synagogues. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is wonderful news. Can you imagine, when was, when was the kingdom first promised? The kingdom is the central theme of the entirety of the Old Testament, near enough. There's so much time, so many words given to it. There are more prophecies concerning the kingdom than there is about the king who's going to rule over the kingdom. It is ubiquitous throughout the prophets, major and minor. It's there throughout the Psalms. It really becomes a main thing from the time of David onwards. But it goes back even into Genesis with the prophecy of Judah and the scepter. This is a central thing. They have waited for not just centuries, but over a thousand years. And now, you people here at this time get to be that generation that can have the kingdom that's been promised for over a thousand years. That's good news, right? That's exciting. And so he's preaching that, and it's quite an amazing message that he's bringing, saying that he is the Messiah, he is the king, and he's going to establish his kingdom. And so how on earth is he going to back that up? And the answer is he's healing people of every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And the news has spread, verse 24... And so people from everywhere are coming. And then in verse 25, large crowds are following him. And we made reference to all those geographical locations given, showing that again, Matthew's focus is that he's gone to the Jews, but that the Gentiles are coming to hear him as well. That Jew-Gentile link is constant throughout Matthew's gospel. So with those things in place, we now understand what Jesus is doing. He is now, has a huge crowd of people because of the miracles he's done. People are starting to follow him. He's called his key disciples. And when he sees these crowds, verse 1 of chapter 5, 
he goes up onto the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he sees the crowds. As I said last time, the crowds become a significant character, as it were, in Matthew's gospel. They are going to be loving him at times and hating him at other times. And he sees them, and so he goes up onto the mountain. We'll talk about that in a minute. In Luke's gospel, we're told it's a flat place. It seems to be a plateau uh, on top of a mountain, somewhere high, where lots of people can gather. And then he sits down. That's a detail you might miss, but when when we're here on a Sunday, and uh, Jenny finishes the last song of worship, and she says, please sit down, then you all dutifully sit down. We're all sitting down, and then we have the uh, prayer, and we're sitting down, and then there's a Bible reading, we're sitting down, and then there's the teaching from the Bible, and I stand up. Maybe in a few more decades I'll need a chair here and I can sit down and teach, but generally speaking, I stand up to teach, right? In the rabbinical system, it was the opposite. That the rabbi would be walking and walking, and he'd be going around, and his disciples would follow him, and he'd teach as he walked, and then sometimes there'd be an occasion, and then the rabbi would just sit himself down. And as the rabbi sit down, there'd be a hush. And then he'd begin to teach. The rabbi sat to teach. So when Jesus sits down, that's the way of Matthew saying to us, and Jesus saying to the crowd, quiet down, let's listen, I'm about to teach you. So the one who has proven who he is, is about to teach. Now we know what he's teaching. We've already been told that by Matthew. He is teaching that there is a kingdom coming, that it's within reach, that the only way to get into that kingdom is to repent, and that this is thoroughly good news. That's the main message that he's teaching. We know that that message is in contradiction to Pharisaic Judaism, and we're going to see a whole bunch of clashes with the Pharisees because of that. And so if Jesus doesn't believe in Pharisaic Judaism, what does he believe in? What did the Pharisees get wrong? And what should we understand instead of that? What does this repentance look like? Does repentance just mean saying sorry? No, repentance is a changing of our lifestyles. It's a saying, I used to be over here and now I'm over there. I've gone from one place to another. I've turned and I'm now going in a different direction. What does that look like? What is the direction? If only we could have some sort of, uh, you know, wiretap. And we could, we could eavesdrop and we could listen to what Jesus was teaching in detail. Well, funny you should mention that, says Matthew. Let's have three chapters of Jesus teaching and let's see the kind of things that he was teaching, the, how it is that you repent, what repentance looks like, what you need to do to be a repentant person who comes into the kingdom, how that fits into Jesus' general message, why then it's good news, and how the Pharisees got stuff wrong. That's what we're expecting. And when we get to 5, 6, and 7, what do we find? Exactly that. And that means that we cannot conclude, like so many do in our circles, Jen and I this week read almost an entire book, not a, not a big book, a little book, but, but somebody who, who is one of my favorite teachers um, and scholars who I respect highly, writing an entire book about why the Sermon on the Mount 
is Jesus giving instructions to Christians in how we fulfill, how we respond as new covenant people. Folks, that is nowhere near Matthew's context. Not even remotely. That's nothing, that's nothing to do with what Matthew's talking about. Does Jesus institute the new covenant? Oh yes, he does. Does Matthew mention that? Oh yes, he does. But you've got like another 17 or so chapters to go. We're nowhere near there. The Jews have an offer of the kingdom that they reject in chapter 12. Jesus then says, okay, the king, you've not got the kingdom anymore. There's going to be a new kind of kingdom. Here it is. Let me teach you in parables, chapter 13 and following. And then it leads towards the crucifixion. And it's there at the death of Christ that the new covenant is instituted. So does Jesus establish the new covenant? Absolutely he does. But not now. But is Jesus perhaps not just telling Christians how they should live ahead of time? Absolutely not. The Sermon on the Mount isn't a message to Christians on how to live. Because... The Jews haven't rejected the kingdom yet and that offer. They don't do that until chapter 12. The context of this book right now is what does this repentance look like that we might repent, that we might be assured that we're part of this kingdom, that we're going to have a place in the kingdom. How is it that we should respond and what is wrong with what we're currently being taught? That's the issue and that's what Jesus is teaching. And I understand that there is the argument that Moses went up the mountain in Exodus. And he went up the mountain and he came down with the tablets of law. And so Moses goes up the mountain and he comes down and now there is the law for the people to obey. And who is Jesus? If not, as we've already seen in Matthew's gospel in the early chapters, that Matthew has nudged the Jews to say, Jesus is the new Moses. And is the new Moses now up a mountain? He certainly is. And is the new Moses going to bring a new law? Oh, he absolutely is. But not now. Not in this context. What's happening here is not that the new Moses is establishing a new covenant and going to bring in new law. That will happen later. What's happening now is that the new Moses is going up the mountain and he is going to tell us what the Mosaic law means. Because they were basically sitting with a combination that the Pharisees were were this weird chimera of Joel Osteen and independent fundamental Baptist preachers. You know, the the kind of ones who who say repent every third word and, you know, and and tell you if you watch TV more than 30 minutes a week, then you're going to go to hell and how dare you be on social media and, uh, you know, Women, you know, if you're wearing pants, then, you know, you're immediately condemned to hell and all that kind of stuff, you know. They somehow mix those two people into one package. And so people are being taught an absolute travesty. The Mosaic law was a mess in the hands of the Pharisees. An absolute mess. And so Jesus is going to sort them out. And look as we go into chapter 5. He begins, and now we'll do this as we did at the beginning. Now we're going to go over this as a sort of flyover. Like a drone. We're going to hover above these three chapters and see what's going on. When he begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What Jesus is immediately doing is he's showing why the Pharisees don't get to come in the kingdom. The end of that chapter, uh, this, sorry, this section of chapter 5 that Michael read for us this morning ends with the astonishing statement in verse 20 that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you've got to be far, 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 far stricter than the strictest of the legalists for you to get in the kingdom of heaven. Should we paraphrase that? The Pharisees aren't good enough. They don't, to get, they don't get to go into the kingdom because they're not good enough. Who does get to go in? The lowly, the humble, the broken. Why? Because they are humble enough to bow before the king and to turn from the errors of the day. Humility is the, is the, the root of repentance. No one gets saved apart from our pride being crushed and us humbly coming before the king. Remember Psalm 2? Tremble. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Which side are we on, folks? Are we the ones who stand against the, against Yahweh and against his anointed king? And say, don't you tell us what to do? Or are we the ones that tremble, kiss the sun, and take refuge in him? Well, the Pharisees are going to show us exactly which side of the equation they're on. But those who kiss the sun, those who tremble, those who take refuge, they're the ones described in the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Gospel. Hey, you guys, you think you're my disciples, you're following me. You need to understand that what the Pharisees are teaching is wrong. You don't all get to come in the kingdom. You have to repent. So I need to tell you how you do get in the kingdom. Do you want to know how to get in the kingdom? And then he tells them the Beatitudes. That's why they begin. Then we have in verses 13 to 20, this astonishing passage that focuses on the minutiae of the law. I want you to notice, well again, obviously as we do these passages week by week, we'll look at them in far, far more detail. But I want you to see that he says in verse 17 of chapter 5, Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets has already been used in Matthew as shorthand for the Old Testament. I haven't come to get rid of the Old Testament. I have, did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So in verse 17, we have a general statement that Jesus has not come to get rid of anything in the Old Testament, but rather he's going to fulfill the entire expectations of the Old Testament regarding the Messiah. That's what he's going to do. Then in verse 18, he says... For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, some versions will say jot or tittle. It's talking about the smallest letter of the alphabet and just that little a little uh, swoosh or a, uh, you know, if you have a small I and a small J, what's the difference? Just a little tail. That's what it's talking about. Just a little part of a letter. He says, 
not none of that is passing away from the law until all is accomplished. Do you see he's gone from law and prophets, the Old Testament, to the law specifically. Now the law can mean many things. It can mean some context is the whole the whole of the Old Testament, but almost certainly not here because of what I'm about to show you. But it can mean the first five books of the Bible, or it can just mean the Mosaic commandments of which the rabbis assure us the 613, not that I've ever counted to be honest. Um, but the 613 commandments contained within the law of Moses. And Jesus is saying that not one smallest part of whether it's those commandments or whether it means Genesis through to Deuteronomy, nothing is going to change, nothing is going to be adjusted, nothing's going to pass away until it's been accomplished. Do any of you ever eat bacon? Okay. Are you condemned for that? I don't recall condemning bacon from the pulpit at any point. Therefore, we obviously believe that there are, there's an aspect at the bare minimum at which this law is no longer in effect. Therefore, it must have been accomplished. Who's going to accomplish it? Jesus. And then he narrows it down further. Law and prophets, law, and now at the bottom here, very precise commandments. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the keeping of the law is necessary. In fact, one of the things the Pharisees got right is this. Keep the law really, really well, and there'll be more honor and privilege for you in the kingdom. They're actually right about that in a sense. Not completely, but at least partially. Because these commandments are really important, and Jesus isn't going to just get rid of them, not until it's been accomplished. When is it accomplished? When does Jesus do his work, complete his work? With regards to the law, the work is complete when he dies on the cross. Tetelestai, John tells us he said. It is finished, right? So until Jesus has died, sinlessly, I hasten to add, then the law is still in effect. All Jews were obliged to keep the law, and all Gentiles that wanted to worship Yahweh had to take the law upon themselves. Which gives us this bizarre situation that if Jesus had eaten a bacon sandwich and then died on the cross, then his death would have accomplished nothing. Because he was a Jewish man, under observation of the law, he had to keep it perfectly, and had he eaten a bacon sandwich or as we call them in England, a bacon sarni, then he would not have been sinless. He would have violated the law. The law had to be kept. So if you are a Jew, and you are living at the time of Jesus, Jesus is not saying in the Sermon of the Mount, let's just get rid of the law, because I've come to get rid of the law. He says, no, 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 you've got to keep it perfectly. You've got to keep it better than the scribes and the Pharisees do. You get to be in the kingdom through repentance, and they haven't repented, so they don't get to come in. But then when you get in the kingdom, there needs to be an observance of the law. 
Do the Pharisees not keep the law really well? Uh-uh-uh. How are we going to know that? Well, thank you for asking. Jesus will tell us. Verses 21 through to the end of chapter 5, we have Jesus quoting the law again and again and again, and he does so with the same kind of expression. Six times he says something along the lines of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. What he is doing is he is correcting and clarifying. He is correcting a Pharisaic misunderstanding of the law. And Jesus is exegeting Moses for us. How cool is that? You want to understand the Mosaic law? Well, here's the one whose finger marked the tablets, telling us exactly what it, what it means. And so, you have heard it said, verse 22, 21, but I say to you, verse 22, you've heard it said, verse 27, I say to you, 28. Now it was said, verse 31, but I say to you, verse 32. And verse 33, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, verse 34, but I say to you. 38, you have heard it said, 39, but I say to you. And sixthly, verse 43, you have heard it said, verse 44, but I say to you. He is correcting the Pharisaic misunderstanding of the law of Moses. And even if you have only a peripheral understanding of that passage, then you know that the big thing that they missed, they focused on outward observance, checking of boxes, and they neglected internal transformation and actually keeping the heart of the law. The obvious example... Do not commit adultery. What is, what is that command doing? It's saying that you should be people who cherish the marriage relationship as highly as it can be cherished. You are a people who once you have come into that marriage covenant, which is a covenant that is supposed to mimic and parallel the covenants that God has had with Israel and now has with the church, and you parallel that covenant and that That one person that you are covenanted to is yours forever and yours alone and no one else. And what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. And so if you commit adultery, you are violating that covenant. And the Pharisees said, oh, okay, I get that. Well, I haven't committed adultery. And yet Jesus says, well, what if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart? What if you mentally undress someone? What happens if you cover your neighbor's wife? What happens in today's language if you go to websites you shouldn't be going to? Watch TV shows you shouldn't be watching. You violate the same command. Jesus is not saying, well, in the old covenant times, hey, you just had to not commit adultery and if you did that, we're all good. But hey, when we come to the new covenant... Now you shouldn't be lusting after people. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is teaching the old covenant law and saying that commandment means more than you think it means. And that's what he does in all six of these examples and all the filler in between. So then when he comes to chapter 6, and we'll go a little quicker here now as we summarize this up. 
He says in chapter 6 verse 1, beware of doing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Can you see how logically that follows chapter 5? In chapter 5, he's basically saying, look, you don't just do things outwardly, it's inwardly that the law must be kept as well, otherwise you're not keeping the law at all. And then he says, beware that you don't just simply do this righteousness outwardly and other people notice it, your Father in heaven needs to notice it. And now he goes on the offensive. He gives us specific examples of things that we do that say, look how righteous I am. I don't know, it's become something these days on, you know, if you look on uh, TikTok or, you know, Instagram or Facebook reels and things like that, you get these, these people who do these charitable deeds. You know the ones? Well, I haven't got any money for my shopping. Would you give me $5 so that I can buy this can of baby food for my starving baby? And this person says, oh, all right, then here's $5. Actually, I don't need it. Surprise, I'm really rich. Here's $500. I was just waiting for someone to see how generous they were. And it's all caught on video. And now they get far more than $500 because the revenue from you watching their stupid, self-righteous, look at me and how good I am videos. And I have no apologies for my cynicism on such topics. Because self-righteousness is wicked. You are tempted to look at those videos and go, oh, they're so good. They're so great. Oh, shed a tear. It is, it is constructed to generate emotional reactions from you. And do you know the part of you that they're touching amongst others is your own pride. Because you look at self-righteousness and go, oh, I wish I was as self-righteous as that. No, you don't. If they were really righteous, then what they'd be doing is giving those $500 without a camera in their hands and not telling anybody about it ever, not even their mother. Because that's what righteousness looks like. Oh, look, that's what Jesus says. He says, when you give... To the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Could that be any clearer? I think that's very, very clear. So he attacks this outward righteousness. And specifically, in each of these examples, he's attacking the Pharisees. He's showing us why the Pharisees don't qualify for the kingdom on the basis of the Beatitudes at the beginning of the chapter. And because he speaks about their public prayer, oh, look at me praying and how righteous I am with my prayers. And look how, I used to have a friend, and when he prayed, he shifted into King James English. The dude was from the Caribbean, or Caribbean, as you guys say. I mean, he was like, I'm not even going to try and do a Jamaican accent, but he was actually from St. Lucia. But, you know, he, he, would, he would have this kind of quite strong Caribbean accent, and then suddenly he'd be praying, and, Oh, Father, that thou wouldst do this and thou wouldst do it. It's like, what's your problem? And I always said, man, you know, I get, I get it. He reads, he was raised on King James. He likes the King James, you know. Maybe I shouldn't judge him, but it seems awfully self-righteous to me. Well, Mr. Self-righteous ended up cheating on his wife and got divorced. Beware of self-righteousness. 
of all the sins that could bring us down. It's top of the list. Beware. So the Pharisees are praying, look at me, look at me, my wonderful prayers. And Jesus says, don't pray with vain repetitions. Pagans do that. Everybody does that. Don't have vain repetitions. Don't just have a prayer and repeat it. One of the main pillars of the Church of England since the 1600s has been the Book of Common Prayer. Lots of prayers that you vainly repeat. And at the centre of all vain repetitions is the prayer that is vainly repeated more than any other prayer has been vainly repeated in human history, which is, Our Father who art in heaven. And the irony is, is that Jesus gives us what we call, probably erroneously, the Lord's Prayer as a basis of how to pray so that we don't pray with vain repetitions. (laughs) The irony is just deafening. It's like the one thing that you shouldn't do with these words is just pray them. Meaninglessly. Just, oh yeah, I'll say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. That's the one thing that you're not supposed to do. That's what the passage says. It's giving us a basis and principles of how we pray so that we don't pray in a way that is empty, vain and self-righteous. And I'm looking forward to dealing with that when we come. Fasting is addressed Again, the New Testament doesn't command us to fast. I know that anyone from the charismatic church is going to be fainting at this point because it's considered a pillar of their self-right, I mean their appearance of righteousness. And, um, but no, the New Testament doesn't command us to fast. But in Mosaic law, there was a requirement to fast. And the Pharisees, being the Pharisees, added extra rules and they had more requirements to fast. And Jesus condemns them because on the fasting days, they'd be going, Oh yeah, you know, I'm fasting right now and things are really hard, you know, because when you fast as much as I do, and I mentioned that I'm fasting, you know, and and all of that, and it's just like, it doesn't make you better, it doesn't make you better, yeah, I know, but it's really hard, you know, Jesus says, put oil on your face, put a bit of makeup on, brighten yourself up, make yourself look good, don't let anybody know you're having a hard time. Self-righteousness. And so the treasures in heaven passage comes in that context. And the context is, don't seek to build up treasures on earth. Because as we've seen for one and a half chapters, it's our hearts that matter. And so there is the warning against money. There is the... Um, exhortation to trust God to provide, to seek Him first, as the summary comes at the end, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All of these things! Well, if you go to Joel Osteen's church, those things include private jets and multiple Mercedes and whatever else. But in the context, it's food and clothing. Period. That's it. You will live, you won't starve to death, and you won't be walking around naked. No other promises. That's the promise of the Christian life. God will give you what you need, pour everything at the altar, put everything at his feet, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Again, our context was, he's teaching the disciples. This is, this is what, this is what makes you part of the kingdom. You now got to keep the law, don't you? If you're going to be a faithful believer, a faithful Jew, this is what the law actually means. This is what you've got to do. 
And this is what it looks like in practice. And then he comes back to trusting in God. And so when we come to chapter 7, all of these things that are so well known, judge not, lest you be judged, don't take the speck out of your eye, not... Um, don't say to your brother, take the speck out of your eye, but tell you have got to take the log out of your own eye. Ask and it will be given to you. All of these well-known passages that most people misunderstand become clear in the context of the preceding two chapters. And it all comes to this conclusion. And boy, I tell you, if you've been following since the beginning of this, if you've been going through this whole sermon, if you've been looking at the, you know, yeah, not just don't commit adultery, but don't lust... Not just don't murder, but don't be angry. You've been going through all of this. Then what comes in verse 13 and following is hardly surprising. Enter the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter into it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that lead to life. And there are few who find it. You know what? The law gives us a standard that is almost unkeepable. Who could possibly keep that law? Who could possibly obey it without fault or flaw? So what are we going to do? How on earth do we get to be in the kingdom if that's what the law entails? You've got to be humble of heart and turn from your sin. And then you're seeking to keep the law. You're seeking to avoid self-righteousness. You're seeking to, to be transformed in the inner man that you might live a life empowered by God to live a certain way. Not many are prepared to do that. Because it's a lot easier to put on your tie and put on your Sunday best and throw in a bit of Christianese or King James English and to sound very, very spiritual than it is to crucify your sins. That it is to deny yourself. Who on earth would want to take that option? The way is narrow. And so he specifically in verses 15 and following warns of those people who are wolves coming in sheep's clothing, who produce bad fruit. You know, those Pharisees, they might look righteous at first glance. They might have their prayers and they might do these wonderful deeds. But do you see humility? Do you see compassion and gentleness? Do you see love? Do you see a desire to obey God's word rather than just to be seen, to be righteous? What fruits are they really bearing? And that's why there will be many people who will claim that Jesus is their Lord who might even do miracles. Boy, I've got something to say about that when we get there. And yet they'll have no place in the kingdom. Why will they have no place in the kingdom? Because there's one requirement to get in the kingdom. Repentance. And they didn't repent. Nobody gets to go into the kingdom simply because they're Jewish. The Pharisees lied. And no one gets to go into the kingdom because they were raised in a Christian home. Or they go to church. We are those who having been called by God respond to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, him dying in our place for our sins, and we hear that message, God opens our eyes, we see the glorious gospel, and we look at what we have, and we say no more, and we turn, 
and we turn from what we had and we turn and we place our trust in Him. Not because we want a ticket to heaven, not just because it sounds good, not because that's what our friends are doing, but we turn because we trust in Him and we place our trust in Him and we leave behind our old life and we seek to live a life that brings Him glory. And Jesus is telling the Jews of that day, at their time, in that context, what that is going to look like. And He warns them of the religious self-righteousness that might make a person think they're okay but actually isn't going to help them at all but is rather a qualification that will prevent them from going into the kingdom. And so the Sermon on the Mount is wrapped up by Jesus saying, this is what it boils down to. Whose side are you on? Are you going to hear the words that I've spoken to you for three chapters and take my words and build your lives upon what I have said? Or are you going to build your house on the sand? That's the decision you have to make. That's the decision that the Jews of that day had to make. Are we going to continue in the Pharisaic system of our day where we're safe and secure? Or are we going to repent and turn to trust in Jesus' method of repentance, his definition of repentance, his definition of obedience, his interpretation of the law, his condemnation of the Pharisees? Are we going to take the way of the Pharisees or the way of Jesus. And Jesus says at the very end, rock or sand, you have a choice to make. And that choice is where the Sermon on the Mount comes into full focus for us as Christians today. Are we obliged to keep Mosaic law? Nope, it ended with the death of Christ. Does Christ's exegesis of the law have no relevance to us then? Oh no, it has huge relevance. And we'll see and we'll unpack it thread by thread as we go through. But overall, we've done that drone footage, that overview of the sermon today. But overall, what Jesus is saying is forget what you've heard and trust me. If you are a Christian, truly, if you have truly repented, if you have truly trusted in Christ on the basis of his work on the cross, if you have truly turned from your sins, if you truly have the gift of the Holy Spirit that John promised that Jesus would give to those who repent, then you will say, I will seek to keep your words. I will seek to build my house on the rock. I will seek to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness towards us. Father, I hope that just a portion of my excitement on embarking on the Sermon on the Mount has been caught by the saints here today. May you bless our studies through it in the coming months. And Lord, may you be glorified in every verse, in every passage, in every sermon. And may we constantly be reminded to deny ourselves, to turn from sin, to trust your words, 
and to obey and follow. Amen. Thank you.